At the Sixth Zionist Congress in 1903, the so-called Uganda Plan was raised, in which um, a British, the British Empire offered to the Zionist organization, to Herzl himself, a tract of land in East Africa, actually in modern-day Kenya, that could be the future Jewish homeland. And the question was, would the Zionist organization take up the plan? Did they specifically want their homeland to be in ancient Israel? Or were they willing to uh, do it somewhere else as well? And that um, proposition fell off the agenda. The Zionist organization rejected it. They only wanted to be in the traditional Zion, Tzion, and Eretz Yisrael. That's where they wanted their homeland. The British also retracted their offer. That's a story in itself. But today, Jewish History Soundbites podcast. I'm here, Yehuda Geber, to share a similar story, not a similar story, another story of an attempt at making a Jewish homeland not in ancient Israel. Actually, this one was an attempt in upstate New York, of all places. And in this fascinating but pretty much forgotten story of an attempt to make a refugee, uh, a place for refugee, Jewish refugees, a refuge, rather, for Jews from all over the world and to create a homeland, um, was, was made in many years before this Uganda plan. It was close to 80 years before that. Um, interestingly enough, the, the famous or infamous Jewish gangster, uh, Meyer Lansky, in his later years he lived in Miami, and he would, um, like every other old Jew in Miami at the time, in the 1970s, 80s, he'd walk his dog and to buy the newspaper in the morning down Collins Avenue. And he lived a nice uh, retired life after his quite active life uh, in New York City in, the earlier, in his earlier years. And he said to another former Jewish gangster that lived in Miami at the time, and he said, you see, we finally discovered that the true promised land is in Florida. And uh, <laughs> an interesting... Um, perspective that uh, many Jews had in one form or another that somewhere in America is the real promised land. And that's where they uh, imagined it to be. It wasn't the first time that Jews throughout their history felt that another country was their promised land. Um, when the Jews arrived in Poland in the 13th century, they asked the locals, how do they call the country? And they told them, Polin. And they said, oh, in, in Hebrew, the words poilin means here we will live. And they said, here we will live in this land until Mashiach comes and brings us back to Israel. And they imagined that that was the promised land. In Spain, in Germany at certain times, they felt that they had reached the promised land. And the Jews in the United States, at one time or another, they either thought Florida was the promised land, there was a Jewish agricultural settlement started in 1882, which was a complete flop um, that they called Palestine. There's going to be Jewish farmers. It was in Michigan, in, uh, in part of Michigan, that they tried to make a Jewish farming settlement. 
which they called Palestine, reminiscent of their Palestine, where they were going to create a new utopian uh, farming land that Jews would work the land and produce. And that also completely did not work out. They were bankrupt, people abandoned it, and never had more than 16 people living there. But what I want to talk about today is a fa fascinating story. It's really the account of one man and his, his um, vision. His name was Mordechai Manuel Noah. And Mordechai Manuel Noah, born in 1785 to a, a family that descended from Sephardim, a Jewish family in Philadelphia that descended from Sephardim, who had come to the United States running away from the Inquisition, running away after the expulsions from Spain and Portugal, which was the early Jewish settlement in America before the German-Jewish immigration of the 19th century, was almost all exclusively Sephardim. And um, he grows up in Charleston, South Carolina, which surprisingly enough was a one of the main Jewish, largest Jewish communities in America at the time. There were only a few thousand Jews living in America, but... He is a very talented individual. He becomes a lawyer. He's a writer. He's a playwright. He's a politician. He's a diplomat. He's quite a few other things as well. Eventually he became a sheriff. He was a judge. He, he very, very multi-talented and, you know, did, did all kinds of, um, of uh, different jobs and career options that he had. And he was very proudly Jewish, quite knowledgeable, especially for his time and the fact that there was almost nothing to speak of any sort of Jewish education at the time. He seemed to be quite uh, knowledgeable of his heritage in that, in that context, obviously. And Manuel Noah, <coughs> excuse me, Manuel Noah, he, um, he is a proud American. He's a patriot. He's a very big supporter of the War of 1812. He writes extensively in support of the war to go to war with England. And he also requests to become a diplomat. And uh, he's offered to become the consul at Riga, which was in Latvia, part of the Russian Empire at the time, which he declines, despite the fact that Latvia, Riga, had a large Jewish population. Um, it's unclear why he declined, but he eventually becomes a the American consul to Tunis, which was known as the Barbary Coast, the Barbary States, um, Muslim countries at the time. And his main job as American consul to Tunis was to try to get American uh, prisoners out. Uh, there had been many American prisoners captured. The Barbary states were notorious, sitting on the coast of the Mediterranean, of pirating ships and uh, holding the sailors and the crews uh, captive, and they held them for ransom. And he would, he, one of the things that he did as a consul, he would actually bribe them, pay off ransom, and he considered it a form of pidin shvuyim. He, he saw it as a very uh, idealistic uh, work, not only to fill his capacity as the American consul, and he was willing to pay any price for it. He actually overspent, which is one of the reasons for his recall as the consul. He didn't serve for the full three years that he was intended to. He was recalled after six months. During his time there, by the way, he met up with the Jewish community of Tunis, the Sephardi Jewish community of Tunis. He was in contact with them. He even tried building an educational facility for them, which did not work out. 
but he's quickly recalled to the United States, and the letter that the Secretary of State at the time, James Monroe, um, who was later the president, he writes to him, this is in 1813, he said that uh, we did not realize at the time of your appointment that your religion would be an obstacle for you to fulfill your, your consular uh, um, uh, goals, your consular job as the consul of Tunis. So it was outright um, blatantly about his religion and the fact that he was a Jew. Now he was very, very proudly Jewish and, and he specifically uh, pointed out his Jewishness as a factor in him being appointed because he was a patriotic American and a Jew. And he said, America has to prove to the world that we, unlike most other countries of the world at the time, again, I want to emphasize that it's 1813. Um, no other country in the world has equality, emancipation, and religious freedom that America has for, for any religious minority, for a Jewish minority, or any other one at the time. Even though it's after the French Revolution, the countries of Europe have not yet um, given full emancipation to the Jewish population. And America was, under the Constitution, ostensibly gave that. And, 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 and that liberty and freedom and opportunity that the Jews were supposed to have in America was being tested now. And it's a very interesting thing that he, he saw this as an affront to the Jewish religion and a violation of the United States Constitution. And he writes letters, he makes a big campaign, he comes back to America, he has connections in a lot of newspapers, he eventually buys up quite a few newspapers, and he's an editor, an owner, of a large amount of newspapers in New York, and he uses that as a platform. He writes letters to the President, to the Secretary of State, to other government officials, and he makes a huge big deal. The small American Jewish community at the time backs it up, it becomes a real, uh, stirs up a huge controversy. Um, and James Madison himself writes a letter, the President of the United States writes him a letter that your religion had nothing to do with it. And it's really a test uh, at the time in American society about how serious do they mean this in the Constitution when they're giving Jews their freedom. Again, 200 and something some odd years later, American Jewry and any other religious minority might take it for granted but it was an absolutely revolutionary concept at the time that a Jew or anyone else is an equal citizen. At this, just look at the context at the time. In any other country in Europe, Jews do not have equal rights. Even in America, in a state like Maryland, um, a Jew is not allowed to hold public office because the oath to hold public office, including professing a belief in the Christian faith. And if someone was a Jew... He would be obviously considered lying if he would make such an oath, so they were effectively barred from office, and this was going through the courts at the time. Again, at the same time, Uriah Levy, who was from another prominent Jewish family at the same time, he's rising through the ranks in the Navy, eventually becoming the first Commodore in the United States Navy, which was a long and protracted fight for him to get promoted, and he had his own issues, he was court-martialed several times. He's really a fascinating personality and a story in itself. But there is an element of both anti-Semitism and the American people getting used to the idea that no one else in the world had pioneered that American Jews or Jews in general were truly equal citizens. So he gets sacked from that position and he moves on. He becomes an editor of American newspapers. He's involved in Tammany Hall, the Democratic Party in, America, in New York. He's a playwright. He becomes the first 
Jewish New York City Sheriff, which also his promotion to the New York City Sheriff doesn't come without controversy. People, there are, is anti-Semitism, there's how could a Jew become a sheriff? And you see again the birth pangs of the United States, the U.S. ideals of freedom and equality are being put to a test. It's the early 1800s. America is a pretty young country still, and here they have to decide how they're going to go vis-a-vis their minority populations. And the idea that he comes up with to solve uh, the Jewish problems is that the Jews have to define themselves in a national sense, and you have to realize that he's expressing ideas of Jewish nationalism and a Jewish homeland. The first time he speaks about it publicly at the Sheiris Yisrael Synagogue in New York City is in 1818. That is, it's early for nationalism in general. Nationalism was just being born in Europe at the time. And it's especially early for Jewish nationalism. He precedes people like Herzl or even the Chayvavetzian movement by quite a few years, about 60, 70, 80, 90 years even. And... Um, He speaks about the need for the Jews to have a homeland, to define themselves in a national sense. And before, uh, and he mentions the fact that they should return to Palestine. He calls it Syria, ironically. Yes, that's how it was referred to at the time. Um, Eretz Yisrael had all these different kinds of names in the eyes of the nations of the world over its history. And what he does towards that end is that he decides that the first thing we have to do is to create a Jewish national homeland right here in the United States. And he explains why. He says, first of all, to get back to Palestine is going to be too complicated. He says, second of all, the Jews are scattered all over the world, and they need to be first defined as a nation. They need to live in a free country like America and be as a real people and build themselves up as a people and come together as a people and not all the different factions. And he speaks very eloquently, and he self-appoints himself to be the leader of the Jewish people. He calls himself the judge of the Jewish people, and he, through a series of maneuvers, he never was a rich man himself, but he was able to get a hold of some funding, and he buys up a tract of land on an island called Grand Island in Niagara River, right near Buffalo in upstate New York. And you have to also understand the context of upstate New York at the time. It's during the period of the Second Great Awakening, which is a religious movement in, uh, in America in general and um, mainly a Christian uh, uh, religious movement where upstate New York was very strong. Don't forget that in the 1820s in upstate New York is exactly when the Mormon uh, church is created. Joseph Smith is in upstate New York. That's where he wants to create his new Zion, eventually moving out to Utah territory. But it starts in upstate New York. So the milieu, the context of upstate New York is is utopian visions, is, is, is religious renewal. These type of ideas are accepted, are popular, and it's exactly over here in upstate New York that Manuel Noah decides to create his Jewish homeland. He buys this piece of land on Grand Island in, um, in, in, in the Niagara River, right near Buffalo, and he, and he uh, makes this very grandiose ceremony. Don't forget, he was a playwright. He knew how to create the theatrics. And he makes this incredible ceremony where he comes up in this, in this whole um, nice-looking clothing, and he calls himself the judge of the Jewish people. He invites the whole world to come to the ceremony. He sends letters also to rabbis in Europe. 
And here he's creating, he gives it a name. It's called Ararat. Ararat, where it was, um, you know, Noah's, Noach's Teva the, landed on, uh, on the Har Ararat, on the mountain of Ararat. This would be the refuge, as Noach's Teva was a refuge for the world. This is the refuge for the Jewish people. And he has a plaque that he calls the cornerstone of the of Ararat, the city of refuge for the Jews. He writes on this plaque. This plaque exists. It's in the. Uh, it's in Buffalo. It's in still there in Buffalo, um, where the ceremony took near where the ceremony took place in the Buffalo Historical Society. They preserve this plaque, and it says on it in Hebrew, "Shema Yisrael Hashem Aleikeinu Hashem Echad," and then it says in English. Ararat, a city of refuge for the Jews, founded by Mordechai Manuel Noah in the month of Tishrei 5585, September 1825, in the 50th year of American independence. And in this ceremony, which actually doesn't take place in Grand Island, um, because he didn't have enough boats to take the thousands of people, almost none of whom, by the way, were Jews. It was mostly Christians who attended this ceremony. And it happened in a an Episcopalian church in Buffalo. That was where he was able to get it hosted. And he proclaims this new Jewish homeland. He invites Jews from all over the world to come and join him. He invites Jewish leaders to join him. Um, amazingly, Jewish leaders in, in France and England and a couple of other places who are not exactly the what we would call the most fanatically religious Jewish leaders at the time, one of them, I think it was the chief rabbi of France, he writes to him that we're not allowed to do this before Mashiach comes. Uh, the redemption is going to come when Hashem decides that it should come from above. You're trying to create a state and a national Jewish entity before Mashiach comes, and it's not the correct way to do it. That's the, the protest against him. We don't really have anything that the people in Eastern Europe, the rabbis in Eastern Europe, uh, wrote to him because the Russian Empire was very suspicious of this idea of a Jewish homeland, and it was censored. It was not allowed to be reported in the Russian press, and therefore um, it was, it's, it's unknown what their, what their reaction theoretically could have been. But um, he was pretty much rejected by his fellow Jews. They didn't see America as a refuge at the time, and interestingly enough also, way before his time, he's seeing this not only as a Jewish homeland, but that America could be the home to the Jews, and that also only bears fruit much later. The great emigration to the United States only starts in 1881. And even the small immigration of German Jews to the United States only starts after this 1825 speech that he gives. And in this eloquent speech that he says at the time of the ceremony, he speaks about Jewish nationalism. He speaks about creating a Jewish homeland, bringing the Jewish people together. And he even speaks about how it's really only a prep stage that this Grand Island scheme in upstate New York is to prepare the Jewish people for later going back to Palestine to create a Jewish homeland over there. And that's his ultimate goal. He became eventually disillusioned from the whole idea. He saw that there was no response from both the, the masses of the Jewish people throughout the world and the Jewish leaders throughout the world. No one responded. He became this despondent about the idea. He wrote a whole book about it. He also um, invited, he, he believed, which was also very popular at the time, even though today it sounds a bit funny, but in the, at the time it was a popular notion that American uh, uh, Native Americans, what they called at the time um, American Indians, 
um, were, were part of the Ten Lost Tribes, the Aseris Ashvatim. And he wrote a whole book about that too, and he gave several speeches on it. And at this ceremony in, in uh, Grand Island, at the, grand, the groundbreaking ceremony of Grand Island of Ararat, um, Jewish homeland, he invites the, the chief of one of the Iroquois tribes of, um, to the ceremony, and he in, in calls on the Indians, the Native Americans, um, to, to recognize their Jewish roots, to recognize their Jewish heritage, and come back and join the Jewish people, and they're also welcome to join him on Grand Island. The Grand Island scheme never worked out. Um, the, never, never was built any Jew. There was some sort of monument built. This was supposed to be the Jewish homeland. The land uh, was lost eventually. He moves back to New York, and he um, is involved in politics, writing for the remainder of his life, and later on in his life, and especially in the 1840s, he starts to talk more and more about the need, instead of creating a national homeland in America, but rather they should somehow attempt to get back to Palestine. He says, we're not going to fight for Palestine, we're going to buy it. We should purchase the land, we'll be a buffer zone um, in between the European Christian countries and the Muslim countries, the Ottoman Empire, Egypt. He said it will be the perfect place for us to have. We need to convince England and France that, that they should allow the Jews to go back and they should support it and we should buy this land and it should become a national homeland for the Jewish people. So he really predates the whole uh, Zionist idea by quite a few years. Uh, pretty much a forgotten man. He was buried in Manhattan in the Sheiris Yisrael Cemetery when he died after a heart attack in 1851. But that was his vision. He remained a popular person, even though people uh, ignored his, uh, his uh, interesting ideas for the time. But that's the story of Mordechai Emanuel Noah and his attempt at creating a Jewish homeland in New York and his vision of creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine. This was Yehuda Geberer of Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and for tours to any of these places and more where um, we go visit and hear about all these people. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Don't miss an episode. And also follow Jewish History Soundbites on Twitter at JSoundbites. And the end of this, at the end of August, I will actually be in London and uh, I'll be available if you want for a tour of Jewish history, speaking engagements, and I hope you enjoyed.